Welcome to the 2019 Wealth Standard Podcast, Season 1, Capitalism. And now your host, Patrick Donahoe. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast. And uh, today we have a very special guest, and his name may be familiar to most of you, but I'm going to introduce him. His name is G. Edward Griffin, and he is a writer and documentary film producer with many successful titles, such as The Creature from Jekyll Island, The Capitalist Conspiracy, and A World Without Cancer. It is listed in Who's Who in America, and he is well known because of his talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them in clear terms that all can understand. Ed, it's a pleasure and, and honor to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back. You know, Ed, over the years, I've had some very enlightening conversations with you, and it includes some of the presentations you've given at different events. And I'm just fascinating in how articulate you are and how well-researched you are, but also how you present yourself and present these topics, which I believe is goes to your character. So maybe before we get into the topic today, which is uh, capitalism, how would you describe your philosophy about life? Oh, I thought uh, we were going to narrow it a bit about life. Well, that's a new thing. That's like uh, my favorite speech topic is the world and everything in it. Well, my philosophy about life, maybe we can do that again sometime, but about the social and political aspect of our lives, it's considerably a narrower field. It's taken me a lifetime to refine my concepts on that. And um, now they're so clear to me and so obvious. I think to myself, I must have been a, a blithering idiot most of my life not to have seen it because now that I do see it, well, it's just like night and day. You know, the old saying is that once you see something, you can never forget it. Well, sometimes people do, but I think in terms of a worldview, you never forget that. Once the bell is rung, it can never be unrung. Once you know, you can never not know. And this is all prefatory to this because I, I have a great deal of optimism about the world today in spite of all of the negative, horrific things that are going on. Because I see a great awakening going on, and young people in particular are coming to know. They are seeing the truth. They're hearing the bell being rung. And even though the, all this turmoil is still going on, I'm aware of this growing groundswell of awareness of, of young people. And they're going to be here long after I'm gone. And they've got it. I mean, like you, you've got it. I know you have. Once you understand it, you never don't understand it. So now back to the question, what is my view? We all like kind of a word, a handle to describe, you know, who are you? Are you a conservative? Are you a liberal? Are you a left winger, right winger? Are you a, a moderate? Or, you know, what are you? A neocon? <laughs> what are all these words are floating around? A capitalist, a socialist, a Nazi, a fascist, all of these things. And uh, I was in that trap for most of my life, trying to figure out which one did I want to be. And I picked one, and it sounded pretty good. And then I got to learn a little bit more about it. I said, nope, that's not me, <laughs> after all. I know I, I went through the whole thing. I, every, I think every young person starts off being some kind of a communist, a socialist, you know, a collectivist is the word. We'll come back to that in a minute. Because it has so much public relations appeal, you know. The greater good of the greater number, isn't that wonderful? We all have to get together, be a team player, 
all these things are very appealing and actually they're good in so far as you go, but nobody ever looks at the flip side of the coin. It's not what you do so much or what you want to accomplish so much. It's how you do these things and how you accomplish them. You know, I learned that a long time ago because in the 60s, I was very curious about all this ideological discussion. And I went down, I said, I'm going to go down to the communist bookstore. I heard there was one in town. And I did. It was down on Larchmont Street in Los Angeles, practically in downtown. And it was called the People's Bookshop, of course. You know, the People's this, the People's that. And so I went in there and, and I got to know the comrades pretty well. They thought I was a convert or a potential convert. They invited me to their study clubs, their study meetings, which I knew and they all, everybody knew that this was a recruiting funnel to get me into the party. And so I played along with it and I really didn't know much about it. I thought, I'm here to learn. And I told them, I said, look, I don't know what you guys are up to, but I'd like to know. Show me, you know, what do you believe? Where are your books and so forth? Well, I don't think they expected what happened because I bought their books and I read their books. <laughs> Not only bought them, but I read them. And it wasn't long after going to a couple of those so-called study groups, I realized that I knew more about the doctrine than they did because they hadn't read them. They had the slogans. I realized at that stage, early stage in this, that most people are driven by slogans. And certainly those on the left and the right, too. I mean, we'll get to that. They're driven by slogans. And one of the greatest slogans, and it's very appealing for the communist and socialist movement, is from each according to his ability, and to each according to their need. Well, now what is wrong with that? That not that wonderful? Isn't that the basis of charity? Isn't that the basis of all the religions of the world? And help your fellow man in need to the best of your ability. So naturally it's appealing. <laughs> but what they don't tell you is how. Now, you have to think a little bit. Now just take this to the next step. How? You know, it's like the argument for, well, World government would bring peace because there would be no nations to fight each other. If you had no nations, there could be no wars between nations and so forth. And then, but you've got to ask the question, okay, world government, what kind of a world government? And, and as a kid, you don't think of these questions, you know? So, and I suddenly realized that when I was trying to figure out what all this meant is that there were actually in the Western world, there were only two basic ideologies. To go outside of the Western world, you've got theocracy, for example, you know, a government based on the concept that the leaders are representatives of God. They've been empowered by God. In fact, they have some kind of a spiritual status that makes them above human. And there are many places in the world today that still believe that. In centuries past, it was much more common than it is today. But that's not the driving philosophy in the Western world. Theocracy is not our problem. Our problem is something else. So, in the Western world, there are only two concepts, and they have words. These words were well-known 80 or 100 years ago. I found out that in the literature, these words were used all the time, but I never heard them And when I went to school. And the words are collectivism on the one side and individualism on the other side. What is that all about? Well, when you take these other words like socialism, communism, fascism, leftist, rightist, you know, modern, all these things, you peel off the labels of those concepts. And all of them are variants of collectivism. They're really all the same if you understand what the underlying elements of the ideology are. 
I made a study of that, and I came up with about eight of them that were quite common, you know, such as, well, I mentioned one a moment ago, the idea of what is the ultimate goal, the, you know, conflict between the individual or the state or the collective, which is more important. And the collectivists, whether they call themselves communists, socialists, fascists, Nazi, whatever, they all believe that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. And that's that magic phrase. And I bought into that when I was in school. Oh, that sounds good. The greater good of the greater number. Just a mathematical equation. If you've got three over here and they want something and only two over here, well, the three get it, you know, because it's the greater good of the greater number. <laughs> and you know, the old cartoon, it's democracy, the greater good of the greater number. The cartoon shows the wolf and the bear arguing over what's for lunch, and the lamb has only got one vote. <laughs> so the democratic thing is that the lamb has to go. Well, anyway, back to your point. My worldview gradually has grown all these years of studying this, and making a lot of discoveries, and frankly, finding out how ignorant I was. Even to this day, I don't think I have any idea that's completely original with me. Everything I have learned was known by the ancients. It was known by people hundreds of years ago, and they wrote about it. I just never read their stuff. Now that I found some of these things in the old documents, and I found books that had been forgotten, some of them had been buried and deliberately hidden from view, now I realize that these ideas are not new, but they're very important. And so I realized that the struggle really is between this concept of what is the basis of society? Is it the individual or is it the mob? And once you get it simplified down to that concept, it begins to get easier to straighten out. So, all right, what is my view? I've taken so long to get to that point. I am what you would call an individualist. I believe that the individual is all there is in a human society. I mean, it's the most important thing. I don't believe that you can vote away a human right. A human right is yours. If you're an individualist, you believe this, that you're born with certain inalienable rights, as they said in the Declaration of Independence here in America, inalienable rights, which means they're individual rights. They're not group rights. And I don't care how many people there are out there. There's a mob out there and they don't like you. Maybe they don't like your beliefs. Maybe they don't like the color of your skin. Maybe they don't like your religion. Maybe they don't like the way you talk. Or whatever it is, they don't like you. And if they can gang up on you and there are three of them and you're only one or two, well, in you know the concept of collectivism, well, the three or the, the larger number gets everything. There's no question of limitations on the power of the group. So, once you get down to that understanding, it, things begin to fall into place. And so I believe that the structure of society is based on individual rights and that we have them. They come with us. Some people would say that they're God-given. If that makes you nervous, then you say, well, anyway, you're born with them. They're hardwired. They're not software. They're hardware. And you have these rights and you create the governments. The people create the governments. The governments can do only those things which you as an individual have a right to do. Because that's all you can delegate to the government, is what you have the power to do. So once you get that concept in place, that's the next one. You think, well, hey, that's an interesting thought. 
what can I do against my neighbor using force and violence against my neighbor? What's okay for me to do to kill my neighbor? Is it ever okay to kill my neighbor or somebody I never saw before? And the impulse is, of course, never okay. But of course, that's not right. You do have the right to self-defense. If somebody is trying to kill you, Lord, help us. But it's desperate. It's you or them. You didn't pick the fight. You know, they're trying to take your life. They're trying to kill you. Maybe they want what you have. Maybe they just don't like you. They're trying to kill you. I don't think anybody would blame someone for defending their life, their liberty, or their property with violence if they had to in the defensive mode. So now, if that's the only basis for individuals to use violence against another human being, then that is the only basis that this individual can delegate to his state, his authorities, to the police and the military and the judges and the courts and all that. If they derive their power from the people, as we like to say, then that's all that they can do because that's all we can give them to do. Once you get that in your mind, you think, oh my gosh, you mean the state can only use force, meaning military force, guns, jails, they can kill you in the electric chair, they can you know, punish you, they can torture you, all these things. Only thing they can use any of that for is in the defense of life, liberty, and property. Wow, that means that 99% of the stuff that our state is doing, supposedly for the greater good of the greater number, they're doing it without any basis at all. They're just doing it. They don't have a right to do it because you and I don't have a right to tell our neighbor that he can't sell his candy bars on Sunday. We can't do that. We can't tell our neighbor what to teach his kids. We can't tell our neighbor how many hours a week he must work or whether or not he needs a lunch break or, oh, Lord, the list goes on and on. We cannot take money from our neighbor that's got a lot of money and give it to the other neighbor that doesn't have a lot of money because we want to justify it. I'm glad you're hitting on all of this because is it really possible to understand the proper role of government? Can you understand what a free market is or anything like you're saying, these layers that come on top of this initial idea of individualism versus collectivism and the collectivism ideas is an abstract individual is, are all that exist. If you can't get beyond that, then there's no sense in getting to the next layers as far as the Second Amendment, as far as other laws, other ideas, other structures. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think that as much as I revere the Constitution of the United States, it was an inspired document. I think it's the, the best political document that's ever been written. But I also know it was a beta model. It was the first time in history that any man had tried to create a state based on the concept that we're talking about. Limitations on the power of the majority or on the power of the ruling elite. Nobody had ever tried that before. We just assumed that if you had control of the guns, well, yeah, that's it. You're in charge. You better like me because if you don't, it's going to not go well for you. <laughs> so, yeah, I have a great revere for the Constitution because it was a beta model to try and instill some of the concepts I'm describing onto an agreement on a printed page. This is what we agreed to. But I also recognize that it wasn't perfect. And I also recognize that if we're going to be talking about these principles and advocating them on a global basis, then we go to some country in Europe or in Asia or in Africa, and we say, well, the U.S. Constitution says, they look at you like, who cares what the U.S. Constitution says? So I realized quickly that if we want to be missionaries on this concept, we have to talk about the principles. 
And even if they had never been embodied in the Constitution, which was almost an accident, you know, it was, it was a fortuitous accident, maybe. But even if it had never been written, these principles still needed to be understood and talked about. So you're absolutely right. I think it's the principles that we have to look at. It's interesting. You know, you go back and look at whether it's John Locke or you look at, you know, some of his contemporaries and then the Scottish Enlightenment and how all of these very similar ideas, which originated well before their time, but as they started to kind of converge, and even though there wasn't really the modern ways in which you communicate, you know, those ideas, they spread, they spread in parts of Europe and obviously in what's now known as the United States. And it really, I think most people will embrace that fundamental idea. And that's why I wanted to hit on that, because if you can't get your mind around that, there's no sense in having a discussion about the ideas that come afterward. But let's go there. Let's assume that you know, our listeners understand that you know, really we have inalienable rights, fundamental rights, and the purpose of our current government structure, Declaration of Independence, then leading into the Constitution, was to protect these rights. That was the function and proper role of government. So going to you know, the next layer, why is there this, I would say, draw toward what we currently have now as a very collectivist society, right? Because there is this kind of like moral backbone, it seems, into most of these collections of people, right? Of collections of individuals. And they're driven by this, you know, moral justification. And you're right. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's Democrats or Republicans. There are these groups that have a very similar initiative, right? So how have you come to understand this draw, right? Or this positive thing that has come from the collective group doing and acting for the benefit of the whole, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that the answer is twofold. I think it's a combination of the fact that people do not know or have not taken the time to think and study about the questions that we're raising, the, the issues. It's sort of like they've never been to school. They don't know how to read and write. They don't know what math is all about. They're not informed. It's not that they're stupid. That's not it at all. It's that they've never been exposed to this information. I'd like to use the word they're politically illiterate. And it's not their fault because they're dependent on the school system and the society in which they're born to deliver this information. And actually, at the turn of the last century, that information was being delivered at an increasingly higher level in America. The school systems were doing a increasingly good job, I thought. But then with the advent of the rise of collectivism and the takeover of the educational system by the missionaries of collectivism, and they started to rewrite the textbooks. And, and of course, then you got the large influx of money from the Rockefeller foundations and the Carnegie groups and so forth. And they stated right in their own literature that their goal was to change the attitude of the people in America that favored collectivism. They said that openly, that's what they set out to do, and they did it. They did it through, first of all, removing the information from the history books and from the school systems that you need in order to combat the propaganda. They've been so successful that now you can hardly find any remnants of this history in our educational system. So unfortunately, the young people going through the school systems are denied this background history. So that's half of it. The other half is that there is a class of people who know exactly what they're doing, and they're the ones responsible for the extraction of this information and for the substitution of a new philosophy, a new point of view, 
to favor collectivism, and they profit immensely by this situation. Over the years, I've never known what to call these people. People call them the elites and, you know, the powers that be and all these names. And I finally came up with this. I call it now the PP class. <laughs> now, what's the PP class? Well, the PP class is those people that are made up of the predators and the parasites. And in every cross-section of any society, any place in the world, any race, anywhere throughout any period of time, I think you'll find that a certain percentage, and I'm going to just say about 15% or 12% of the population, that are predators. And probably another 15 on top of that, that would tend to be parasites if they were encouraged. If they were given a free ride, I think that side of their nature would come forth. And so here you have the predators who really want to control you. They want to control society for their own wealth and power. And they really are predators. They have no sympathy or compassion for the human being at all, except to make them their servants and their machines and serve them. And they will deceive you and deliberately lie. They'll, they'll even kill you if you get in their way. They're just predators. And then you've got the parasites that get sucked into this thing. They get dependent on the predators and they'll do what the predators say. And you've got a pretty good little army there that will work day and night to continue to feather their nest at the expense of your work and your liberties. I think it's as simple as that. Now, you could go and sub-analyze that into different subcategories. But I think overall, those are the two main forces that we're facing. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, a financial strategy to reignite the American dream, is completely changing the way people look at saving, wealth, and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio, and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast. So let's pivot to this because obviously the theme of our season is capitalism. What is the discussion we've been having and, and what we've been referring to as far as principles and individualism and capitalism? Like what's the connection in your mind? Well, I think the word capitalism, let's just take a moment there, because that's one of those words that it's very hard to, for people to find agreement on the definition. If you're a collectivist in your thinking, maybe you're not one of the PPs out there, but you're, you're just a student hearing all about this, and you think, yeah, the greater good of the greater number, and all of that, and so you're into that. And somebody says, yeah, these capitalists are all selfish individuals. All they care about is getting to be rich, and they, they'll just grind you into the ground. Well, what are you going to are you going to be a capitalist? Well, no, if that's the definition of capitalism, you're not. And so it depends on how you define the word capitalism. And there, are, you get 50 people in a room and ask them to define capitalism, I bet you'll have about at least 35 or 40 definitions. Mm -hmm. So what's my definition of capitalist? I like to go just to the roots of the word. Capital is a form of property, okay? Capital is property. And so a capitalist is a person who believes in the concept of privately owned property. And he uses that property for whatever purpose he wants. But in an industrial society, the capital, his property, becomes a means of production. He invests his personal property into machines, 
into educational institutions, training programs. He may even have schools he creates to bring people to a high enough educational level so they could work within his factories or his uh, systems and so forth and provide jobs and raise their standard of living. So, or he can be a crummer. He could be a bad guy and use his capital for purposes of which we would not object. But that's up to him. If he's going to use his capital against the laws of the land, well, then he's a criminal. He's a a criminal capitalist. (laughs) Being a capitalist doesn't make you a good person, except it does narrow your focus to the fact that you believe in private property. That's all. And that is the foundation, I believe, the foundation not only for prosperity, but for personal liberty. Because if you do not have private property, you cannot sustain yourself. You cannot be independent. You have to be dependent on the group. Well, what's the group? It's always the state. So you become the servant of the state. You do what the state tells you to do if you do not have private property, which is why people like Karl Marx and Lenin and Hitler and Mao Zedong and all the other great collectivists of the world said, private property has got to go, you know? And they teach that in the schools today, saying private property has got to go because it's not right, it's not fair. So they put a twist on it. They sell it as a humanitarian objective when they know that private property stands in the way of of the individual being subjected by the state. So my definition of a capitalist is simply a person who believes in private property. And last year, you know, I spent the entire year going through John Locke's, you know, kind of ideas around life, liberty, and property and what those things meant and how, you know, a very successful society has to understand those principles and how they work together. And, you know, I look at what you said, which I think is brilliant and property or capital is something tangible. It's kind of the physical world. But I even look, you know, these days with, you know, the internet and how much is being done there, which it's kind of hard to distinguish. Is that physical or is that non-physical? But in the end, I think that human beings, the brilliance we have in each of us is that we're all different. There's a uniqueness about human beings that's incredible, right? Because we're all different. We all have different backgrounds. We all think a little bit differently. We all have different ideas. And that's where I think, you know, property is an extension of that. Property in and of itself, I don't know if it has value, right? I think really the value comes from our ideas, our uniqueness, and how it applies to that specific physical resource and what can be done with that, right? And that's where... Well, well, sure, if I could just interrupt briefly on that. If it has no value, it's not property because nobody wants it. (laughs) Nobody wants it. If it's a rock in the middle of the stream, it has some value, but not very much. Nobody cares for it. No. Unless it's pretty. No, if it's pretty, then it has value. Somebody wants it. Now it's property. There has to be like a relationship between individuals, right? In order for property to have that value. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now it's a fascinating idea, but at the same time, you look at, okay, what's, you know, going back to your point of criminal capitalists, because there are, right? And the criminal capitalists are those, the prey on individuals, but I would say also it's one of those, they violate those inalienable rights, right? So I look at, you know, the structure of free market capitalism and how it reinforces and protects individualism. And it allows for both the success and also the failure associated with using capital. But it's, again, tying into the idea of individualism, you have to protect a person's desire to want to use property to do something, right? And to benefit themselves. And ultimately, it has to benefit someone else in order for it to be determined that, as property. That's the ticket. The, the principle of enlightened self-interest is extremely important. Even if you're a son of a gun and you're really a bastard, 
But if you realize that the only way you can gain wealth and comfort is to build something or do something that serves a purpose for society, then you're going to be a constructive human being, whether you like it or not. Because it's your enlightened self-interest to do it. And if you look at, again, the whole centralized, you know, power around what capital is and resources, it conflicts with the ideas of individualism. And I look at, you know, the word that's thrown out there today, which is, you know, equality, right? Where this person has too much money or this person has an unfair advantage. So how have you come to understand the drive for equality and what that even means? Because that's a word that, again, is, you know, defined in a number of ways. (laughs) Well, yeah. It is. And first of all, yeah, it's a word that is very difficult and people have different responses to it. First of all, as you said so well, no one is the same to somebody else, exactly the same. So nobody is exactly equal. And thank God for that. I mean, wouldn't it be boring if everybody was exactly like we are? Totally. <laughs> We'd probably be mad at each other most of the time <laughs> because we're on to each other, right? <laughs> we know all of each other's tricks and all of that. And thank God there are differences in talent and, and structure and strength and intelligence and aptitudes. And I might even say gender. I think viva la difference. So nobody wants to be equal in the sense of that context. But what we want to be equal, how and under what circumstances, is under the law. We want to be treated under the law equally. And that's all we can ask for, all we should ask for. We don't want any favoritism. We don't want to be treated as a special group or class, even if our parents were destitute, even if we were poor, or if we were denied something, uh, didn't have love or something, maybe. One of our parents is dead, uh, all of these things. Maybe we were born with a a deformation of some kind, and maybe we don't have a hand. Maybe we were in an accident, and all these things. All we have to say is that you cannot give any group any favorite treatment under the law, no matter how worthy their cause is or how compassionate you may feel toward them. Because once you cross that line, there is no stopping it. You can always make an argument. Well, if this was true for Matilda, it's also true for Johnny. Now, his condition is a little bit different. Well, okay, now you've got two exceptions. Well, if it's true for Matilda and Johnny, it's also true for Mary. And the first thing you know, the whole world has got these exceptions. And if all you need to see that is go look at the federal income tax and see at all the exemptions and so forth. So, you know, it just becomes a maze. It's illogical. It's unethical. And so forth. All we can ask for is to be treated absolutely equally under the law. Now, and most people will say, yeah, that sounds good. And yet they're perfectly content with the existing legal system, which I guarantee you, 90% of the existing laws on the books do not treat people equally. 90% of them, at least, are designed to shift favoritism from this group to that group. Give this person a little edge over that edge or to punish this group for that. It's 90% of the laws are not administered equally. And we got to do something about that if we really want to create a better world. Well, it's one of those things where it's just going to continue to have correction in law to compensate for, you know, the deficiency that's created by another law that's then, it's just this like vicious cycle, right? All trying to compensate for something that's really simple. And yes, and you know, the the truth of the matter is that that's not just stupidity. You think, well, how, you know, it sounds good, but they've made a mistake. They didn't think it through because it won't work. What we don't realize is we're dealing with predators. They did think it through. They know exactly that it won't work. 
But in the process, they know that it puts them in the middle. They're now the administrators of the system. They're in charge. It helps them a lot. They don't care that it doesn't work. In fact, they're delighted that it doesn't work because now it's an excuse to go back and have another program and more taxes and more regulations and more power to them, you see. So it's not stupidity. You've got to remember there is a predator class at work. Well, I just had the thought and I had on a kind of bullet point to talk about, you know, monetary policy. And, you know, I think a book that is definitely, you know, something that you created as this enlightening document to be able to understand what the monetary system of the U.S. is or just a central, you know, monetary system in general. But going into that, I think it would take another two hours. But I look at even with that, which I think is just another way of describing collectivism and also the creation of equality in a sense. But if you don't understand just the simple principles of what individualism is and also the principles associated with why our founding fathers created the documents that they did and why they did it, kind of escaping from the political systems that they were in before, then there's no sense in getting into monetary policy because it'll just be like super confusing. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's you look at what is running the world right now and it's commerce to an extent. And commerce is all, you know, controlled. It comes down to the control of a central bank and how they're able to manipulate certain things for the interest of I don't even get into the what those groups are, but you know where I'm going. But did a lot of what we're talking about play into the desire that you had to write that book? That's a good question. I have to think back. I'm rewinding the tape now all the way back so many years. I think the honest answer is no. Because when I had a desire to write that book, frankly, I had no idea what I was getting into. (laughs) (laughs) Had I known, I'm sure I wouldn't have attempted it. It was too much. But ignorant though I was, I thought, oh, this is an interesting thing, how money comes into creation. You know, they create money out of debt, which means out of nothing. Debt is even worse than nothing. And then I'm going to do a little documentary on this one. And of course, that was just the beginning of my learning process. Had I known, no, I wouldn't have gone all the way through. It was too much. So yeah, the depth of this problem is something that grew in my awareness as I prepared for writing the book. It was a learning process. So looking at today, where we're at, you had said something that hit home, which is there's optimism, right? And despite what's going on in the world around us, which is quite a bit, where do you derive kind of the energy for that optimism? What are you seeing that makes you optimistic? It's kind of a two-part thing. The first part is most interesting is where do I drive that energy or where does that drive come from? And I had to stop and think about that. And I guess since we're talking about the predator class, we might think that at the other end of the spectrum, there is a crusader class. (laughs) And I think that's true. I think we have about the same percentage of 3%, 10% little group at the other end that just are born with that drive to set things right. And I discovered late in my, I consider it late in my life. I was an adult. I was married, had a job and had a family and everything before my crusader gene kicked in. I had no interest in, you know, saving the world or anything like that. My interest was climbing the ladder of success and looking good and living well and all that sort of thing. But when I got into some of these issues that we're talking about now, I realized, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about it? That's a problem. Some of us have (laughs) this insane desire, this insane thought that we can do something about it and we must do that. So that's really, I think, the honest, bold-faced answer is that I can't help myself. And there are 
I have a feeling you're probably the same way. There are probably at this end of the spectrum, there may be, be 5%, 6 7 10% of the people who just can't help themselves. They've, they've got to rush forward and see what they can do to correct the wrongs. And no matter what it takes, we just can't sleep until we figured it out. So that's my drive. I don't know. I'm not claiming any great honor for it or any praise. It's just the way I am. My crusader gene is always buzzing. So I think that's interesting because if you look at the world in retrospect, in all history, all the great changes in history were done by one, two percent of the population. That's all. One or two percent on one end, one or two percent on the other end fighting it out, and the other 98 percent we're just sort of sitting back saying, well, I wonder which side's going to win. And whichever side wins, and, well, I was always on that side. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of sad in a way, but it's encouraging, too, because it means that we don't have to convince our neighbor next door cutting his lawn. If he looks at us with that glazed look and he says, huh, well, yeah, but what did you think about the Super Bowl? You know, that's what all he wants to talk about. Or what about that uh, Dancing with the Stars last night? Wasn't that something? If that's the focus of his life or her life, well, then you just say, hmm, next. <laughs> and we're looking for that 2%, 1% that have this crusader gene. That's an amazing way to put it, the crusader gene. I've never heard that, but that makes sense. And I look at, you know, a lot of what drives, you know, other collectivist groups. And I think that, you know, they probably think that they're crusaders too. Oh, definitely, at- definitely, yeah. I think a lot of people, especially the young people that are recruited into the left movement, are definitely crusaders, and they think they're working for something good. I was that way yeah. at first, and then I realized the trickery involved in all of these slogans, and then, of course, that changed everything. Yep. And how I look at maybe we can end, end with this, how I've looked at you know things over the last couple of years and really wanted to understand how important it is to recognize not just the principles associated with individualism, but you yourself, right? And that there's beauty in all, in really all individuals. There's that uniqueness, uniqueness of where they're born, the, the socioeconomic, you know, environment, the political environment, right? And I think people are driven in very similar ways. What's touched me over the last couple of years is understanding more about the different hierarchy of what people are driven to do. And Maslow has one model that I think is pretty simple to understand. Right. But we don't have to worry about in our day and age, you know, food, shelter and clothing. Right. I mean, those are somewhat simple to come by. Right. And then, you know, as far as inching our way up the ladder, I think people are getting very close to this idea of wanting to do purposeful things. Right. And that's where it comes down to the collectivist idea. Right. I think does have a, in a sense, a moral foundation and they're pursuing something for the best interest of others. But I look at, you know, most of those groups and really what it does is it ruins the individuals, right? Whether it's giving away welfare and and their social programs and giving away this and giving away this, redistributing wealth, it ruins the experience of the individual to grow and to experience life. And that's where I find is, you know, very unnerving because, you know, I look at just how important, you know, the experiences I've had in life, the difficult experiences. And if I had been bailed out, where I would be and not having learned from those lessons. And I look at, you know, family members, I look at, you know, so many different circumstances where individuals are robbed of experiencing life. And I think that's one of the travesties of our day. Yeah, you're certainly right on target with that. The idea of protecting people against the effects of their own folly. Well, I think it was Lord Acton or somebody like that that said, if you protect men from the effects of their own folly, you will fill the world with fools. 
And that's exactly what happens. And so you realize that if you follow the mantra of collectivism, you do not help people. You actually hurt them. You may give them a meal. You may give them something they need very badly at the moment. Well, that's charity. I'm all for that. You should be doing that. But to build a system around that so that it becomes not no longer voluntary, but you have to do it or you go to jail. Now you've created a system, a machine that's going to destroy the average person. It will not help them at all. And I came to the conclusion that, you know, the mantra of collectivism is for the greater good of the greater number. And if necessary, that means you have to, to sacrifice the individual. I finally came out the other side realizing that, wait a minute, realizing that the individual should be the center of the state protecting the individual. That is the greater good of the greater number. That does help the greater number to a higher degree than collectivism, which professes to have that goal, accomplishes just the opposite. Well, this has been fascinating. I wish we had more time. I know your time's valuable. How can individuals follow you and learn more about what you're doing? I know you still write quite a bit and contribute in different areas. What are some of the best ways to keep up to speed with what you're up to? Well, thank you for that. I suppose the first thing I should do, and I always forget this, is to talk about our commercial site, our realityzone.com. That's where we have oh, a lot of books and recordings, videos and audio tapes on the themes that we're talking about here. My books are there too, but we have about a hundred different excellent items. And it's a good place to start if you're looking to flesh out these ideas and say, I wonder if this is really true. You want to dig into the history and the rationale and the logic of it all. Then you have to do a little study. But okay, that's the starting point. You have to put these ideas into action. And knowing that something is a superior idea doesn't make it win, especially when you're up, up against the PP class. <laughs> the predators and the parasites are working against you, and they're all of them looking for laws, the force of the state to compel you to shut up or go away or conform to their point of view, whether you like it or not. Just to have this knowledge in a big bookcase full of books and you've read them all. Oh, this, you can't do anything to me. I understand. No, no, that's not it. You got to get out there and get active and recapture the system and change the laws if, if necessary. So I'm really devoting my attention to that aspect now. And for anybody that's interested in that, I'd like to just invite you to come visit us at the freedomforceinternational.org. It's an organization. I'll tell you all about it there at the website, but it's a group of people. We, have, we now have members in, I think it's 85 countries. It's amazing. Well, this issue of collectivism versus individualism is global, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just here in the United States. In fact, it's even further advanced in some other parts of the world. It's more sophisticated here, but it's quite global, let's put it that way. And then now let's go right to the chase. In order to get the word out to as many people as possible, we've devised some marketing tactics, if you wish to call them that. And we've adopted the idea of the red pill because, you know, you can talk about ideology all you want, collectivism and individualism. And some people say, oh, I'm, that's hurting my brain, you know. But if you talk about something more popular, like, well, you know about take the red pill and break out of the illusion, you know, face reality. Oh, yeah, I saw the movie, The Matrix. It was a pretty good movie. And all of a sudden, it's in a more popular frame and not quite so intimidating. So we're having fun now talking about these things in the context of the red pill. And it's really, it's fun. So I'm getting to the point now. We have a red pill expo. It's the third one now we've put on. And it's scheduled for June, coming up in June 2019. 
in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. You put it on your calendar, please. It's uh, June 7, 8, and 9. And if you want to know more about it, come to the website, which is redpillexpo.org. It's a great event. That's all I can say. Uh, it's a no-holds-barred event. People come there. We don't agree with everybody that's on there. In fact, we have some pretty good debates sometimes. But the idea is, if you want to break out of the matrix, out of the illusion, you have to open your mind to the fact that maybe what I know or think I know is not true. Mm -hmm. If you say, well, I'm not going to listen to that person because that's not true, that means that you already have closed your mind to ever getting outside of the box that you're in. Because just everything out there is not true. Only what's inside my box is true, and you've had it. So anyway, that's the, you get into some great discussions at the Red Pill Expo. I invite you all to come. So we'll post all those links. I'm from Hartford. Where are you doing it in Hartford? Oh, a good question. I should have the name of the conference center, but it's okay. a big one. Yeah. It's a big one right in the middle of town. Okay. Oh, my gosh. I'll have to look it up. We'll come to the website and you'll find okay. out. We'll, po we'll post everything. I was, just, I was just curious personally. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, in fact, I got to tell you, we just finished the uh, website and the enrollment process yesterday afternoon. I think it was about 8.30 p.m. Pacific time. Imani, who's taking care of our Facebook and social media stuff, just sent a tweet out to a couple of people. And 10 minutes later, we had our first order. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes. At our first enrollment. <laughs> so it's a good omen. I know people are going to flood to this thing. It's something you don't want to miss. We're going to put the word out. And yeah, I'll make sure that we send some you know, when, when this goes live, which will either be next week or the, the week after so that we get some traction yeah. there. But Ed, this has been a fascinating discussion. And I know you're so passionate about this. You just keep doing interviews and you keep doing videos. And it's a worthy cause because I think that, you know, in our day and age, people really are understanding more, or at least they're curious and more open-minded. So hopefully these ideas resonate so that you know, people can really start to celebrate what can ultimately change their lives. But I think change, well, you know, uh, they, change the world. These ideas do resonate. That's the fact. They resonate because they're truth. Yep. You know, the truth. And when you hear it, it, the bell is rung and you think, wow, I've been waiting for that sound all of my life. There it is. But the biggest barrier to truth is that you may have to be wrong and people don't like being wrong. No, no. It's embarrassing. <laughs> but at the end, you think, my gosh, now, now I'm awake. Yep. Anything that's really changed the world, right, is uh, somebody had to kind of step back and question assumptions. Well, Ed, it's a pleasure as always. Good luck with everything. And then I'm sure we'll get back in contact. Maybe we can well, do a, ver a version two about the Federal Reserve. Well, yeah, do a version two. <laughs> and meanwhile, yeah, put it on your calendar. I'll see you in Hartford in June. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thanks, Bye. Ed. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Lord.